Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, have you engaged in a good staring contest recently? I'm trying to do it with you right now. Don't blink. Ah, oh, you blinked. I didn't, did I? I, I kind of like narrowed my eyes. Maybe I, you see the thing is you never know when you blink sometimes. I guess so. Yeah. But yeah, uh, this is something that I used to engage in with my brother all the time. Yeah? Did yeah. you did you tend to win or was it a stalemate? Did you just both stare at each other until your eyeballs dried up? And- I don't know. He's pretty competitive, so I probably just got tired of it after a while and blinked just to end it. Staring is weird. It is a, a strange thing. I, I feel like we've touched on this before, but like the more you stare at somebody, the weirder it becomes, mm-hmm. the weirder their face becomes, and they start looking like just alien monster creatures. You know, just because you you begin to to take sort of the default version of what they look like and 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 deconstruct it. Well, remember when we were looking at the Bloody Mary studies about staring into the mirror? Yes. And if you stare hard enough and long enough, your brain starts to freak out, and because it's just staring at that one bit, and it's starting to sort of say, "Oh, okay, I'm going to start throwing all sorts of weird images in here." Mm-hmm. So. Hopefully, you're not sitting in front of someone and staring at them so intently that that's happening. But you're right. It does kind of cause you to to sort of reconfigure everything. Yeah. Now, I will say in, in these podcast uh, recording sessions, I tend to make more eye contact with you than I make with most people mm-hmm. because we're directly across from each other. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not looking at the my notes or staring off into the middle distance, uh, then I'm having to engage with you because this is kind of a conversation performance that we do here. It's true. And, yeah. I, you know, we're taking visual cues off of each other, too. Yeah. Like, hey, wrap it up, or hey, yeah, yeah that's totally interesting. More and <laughs> more. So, yeah, staring, obviously, is something that we do as humans for a variety of reasons, and yet it, it's a bit of a mystery, right? Yeah. And then there's there are all these whole elements, too, of, uh, of uh, you know, personal space and machismo. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine was uh, sent me some sort of Facebook correspondence because he is friends with all the people we went to high school with. Um, and he follows them on Facebook. So they'll inevitably say just weird and stupid things or things that just don't really sync with your own personal worldview, including like one dude uh, who lifts a lot and maybe doesn't do lifts a lot. Weight? Of, lifts Lifts weights. Okay. Lifts. You know, hits the gym. Right. And then he starts off on this whole diatribe that uh, that kind of breaks the world down into um, into those who lift and those that don't, or those that lift a lot and those that don't lift as much. Mm-hmm. And and it was about like making eye contact with individuals on the train or on the street, and how every and, and implying that every incident of this mm-hmm. with men making eye t- contact with each other that it is a stare down to see who is the alpha. A- AKA who lifts the most. Okay, well, that's very interesting for two reasons. One is, and, and this is anecdotal, of course, but when I've been at gyms before, I have noticed that people who are lifting are always staring at themselves, like, really, like, yeah. Have you noticed this? And they don't break. Like in the mirror? In the mirror. Yeah. They're, like, staring, almost like the person in the mirror is the aggressor. Huh. Okay, so the second thing about that. Like they're like they're in an ape that doesn't realize that the ape in the, in the mirror is their own reflection. Right. Yeah. You know, why does that ape keep staring at me? Can't they see me with all my weight? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have noticed that over and over again. And uh, David Turberg et al. of the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands and uh, and some other researchers, they wanted to see if this is really true, that we stare for dominance, that this is really automatic for humans. So they devised a test in which participants were presented with different colored ovals 
in different colored dots. Mm-hmm. Seems pretty straightforward, right? What they were advised to do is to try to... They're popping up on the screen in front of you. Yeah, yeah. those those ovals are popping up on the screen. They're the same color as the dots, and they're saying, hey, just visually match that oval to the dot when it comes up. But they're sneaky, the researchers, because a split second before the oval appears, a face of the same color appeared with either angry, happy, or a neutral expression. Okay, so what they were doing is they were testing to see how long it took for people to look away from faces with different emotions. And they compared this data with a questionnaire that the participants completed that measured how dominant they were in social situations. So if you had some of those weightlifters here, mm-hmm. no doubt they would rate you know, pretty high on social dominance. So the results were that people who were more motivated to be dominant were slower to look away from angry faces. Mm-hmm. And then people who were motivated to seek rewards gazed at the happy faces longer. So in other words, the assumptions were right here is uh. that there is a bit of face or eye staring in terms of dominance and trying to say this is this is a space that I'm occupying and I'm dominating right now. It's weird because on one level, I I totally buy that. Mm-hmm. But on the other, it's like I think about like being on the train and if someone is like staring at me with crazy eyes. I'm going to look away because it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would I, why would I engage that person? Like, why would I, it's like, all right, you're an alpha. It's great that, you know, you're covered in your own vomit, but you're an alpha. So I'm going to let you do your own thing. But that's the extreme, extreme, right? That's the crazy eyes. What if someone is just like, what if there's another you, Robert, who just happens to be across from you staring at you? Well, I, I, I would not stare back, probably. I mean, I, do I know this other me? Or do I say, oh, that's me, that's my doppelganger? You don't know you. I don't know me? No, you're a stranger. Okay. You're like so you in the stranger. problem okay. of you. Okay, yeah. just another person of my general make and model. Yes. Well, no, I wouldn't want to really make eye contact with them. Why would I do that? Okay, so I can't believe I'm admitting this, but there's a seven-year-old in my neighborhood mm-hmm. who's kind of a toughie. Yeah. And he's always kind of saying, like, awful things to people. And, I mean, he's seven, right? Yeah. So you don't take him that seriously. But I have to say that I was backing out of my driveway not mm-hmm. too long ago, and he was, he was like, trash-talking. And I knew he was trash-talking me. Me, oh, yeah. For backing out of your driveway. I don't know. This yeah. kid, I'm telling you. Anyway, so I backed up the car, and then, you know, I was parallel with him. He's on his bike. And I sat there and I stared. I did the stare thing. Yeah. And I didn't even know at the time that that was what I was doing. But I wasn't going to roll down the window and say, young man, don't trash talk me. Yeah. But, you know, I just sat there and and gave him the what I now understand was the dominant stare. Huh. And we sat there and it was finally him who broke it. But that was my way of saying, step off, kid. I'm just trying to get to work. See, now I find that if I'm if I'm at the the train and there's somebody like that, not a seven year old kid threatening me. But, yeah, and by the way, I know how lame it is to do a stare-off with a seven-year-old. I get it. But no, you had to put your foot down. I, I think you did the right thing here. Yeah, okay. But but I find that if there's someone that's being a little scary or being a little uh, kind of like, you know, tough guy on the train, like my gut instinct, if I'm thinking about it, if I'm engaging in it and letting my ego engage in, in, in this kind of thing, uh, which is probably a bad idea to begin with, my response will be to not acknowledge them at all, to sort of like stare straight past them or through them. Um, so is it, So in my own mind, I'm thinking, I'm not engaging with you, so you can't possibly be the alpha in this situation because I can't even see you. You're so non-alpha. 
I like that. Yeah. I like that. It's like there's no, I don't and it see really an sounds alpha. really stupid when I, when I no, actually break it out into language. It makes sense. It's because, like, I mean, it's all pretty stupid because it's like the idea of like dudes on a train having to establish a hierarchy of who's tough and who isn't and who lifts and who lifts more. I mean, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. And, and I want, and I, my instinct is to just throw it all out and say that it's all just a bunch of malarkey. But I do have to acknowledge there's, that these social dynamics exist. They do. And staring is a really big way to try to ferret out the emotional states of others anyway, right? Because if you were on the train and you saw crazy eyes, you averted your gaze because you knew that was no good. You're not going to lock eyes. That's not good news for you. They're going to think I want to talk. Exactly. You don't want to talk. In the article, Why We Stare Even When We Don't Want To by Deanne Musloff, uh, writing for Wired, she says that humans are highly social animals and rather than remaining among our family or herd from birth to death, we venture out and we have to do this in a safe way. So we have evolved a rough screening process with this stare. And she says that, you know, your sweeping stare is giving you all sorts of data that gets processed in your amygdala. Now, mm-hmm. this is the area of the brain that is associated with emotions and judgment. And so that's how you deem if a person is safe or if they're dodgy. And you've got that split second reassembly of their face, by the way, while you're doing this Mm -hmm. um, in your mind's eye. And when you're reassembling that person's face, you're looking for things like, does this person look familiar to me? Does this person have an emotion of sadness, happiness, anger? Yeah. Do they do they look like they're a part of my group? Do they look like that they are? merely out in my group now because they're lost? Do they look like they have some sort of malicious intent? I mean, yeah, we, we do all of this without even really thinking about it. Uh, in fact, we, we often do this kind of thing and then feel bad about it. You know, you'll, you'll be yeah. like, oh, who's that shady guy walking down my street? And then a part of you will be like, no, no. Uh, he probably has a legitimate reason to be here. He might be a missionary or a salesman. Don't jump to conclusions. But there's still that part of your brain that instantly passes judgment. Right. In in the article, it's that, that whole part of, like, why we stare even when we don't want to. We're doing this to, again, as you say, like, ferret out. Like, is this person here for harm or good or what's going on? Are they us or are they another? Yeah. And, and they were saying in the article, our Deanne uh, Musloff was saying that if the person deviates greatly from the norm, for for instance, if the person had a face transplant, right, that's yes. probably mm-hmm. about as much as you could deviate from the norm. Then, then your stare really gets locked down because now your brain is again reassembling the face, trying to make sense of it, and knowing that it doesn't make sense. So it's trying to fill in those gaps, and you're going to stare longer and longer and longer. Yeah, it. I mean, when you encounter any level of disfigurement, or even just like mild, not even disfigurement, but even like mild asymmetry. Mm-hmm. Well, not even not mild asymmetry, but say. Um, a symmetry that you haven't seen before, because mm-hmm. you certainly you easily get used to a symmetry in any individual's face, uh, or, or like a, like if one eye is looking off a little bit to the side. But the first time you encounter it, it can be a little a little off putting. But if it's something severe, it you get into that weird space again, where every instinct in your body is to look and analyze and figure right. out what's going on. Uh, but then you feel just increasingly bad about doing it because we've all been told from an early age, because in an early age we don't know, mm-hmm. and that that's when we do things like stare uh, at, at a, a diminutively sized individual in a grocery store and point at them and mm-hmm. ask our mother what they are. My mm-hmm. sister did that. Um, th- that's when we, we don't really understand the social constraints we have to work with, and we're told, above all else, do not point at people who are different, do not stare at people who are different, uh, but we have that strong instinct to do so. Right. Largely, humans are not being jerks. They're just trying to figure out the discrepancies. Yeah. Like I was in a, a nursing home once uh, visiting my, my grandmother, and there was an individual there that and, – and I was 
again, I, I didn't want to stare. So I don't even really have a clear version of ver- vision of what this person looked like in my mind because I didn't go back for more details because it felt wrong. But I remember their face was like just a black hole. And I'm not even sure how that worked, like hmm. on a physical level. But it, it was, but it was a, it was weird because there was the pull to stare, and it was a very strong pull. Uh, but it, but I just had to really push it down with all of the, the the social rules that were in place. And you do, you have to tell yeah. your brain to shut that off, right? Yeah. Um. And, and this is something we do all the time, right? Because we don't want to make others feel uncomfortable with our stares. Yeah. Well, another aspect of the whole others and us safe and, and risk, all you know, disease factors into that as well. Does mm-hmm. this person look like they are healthy? And if they are not healthy, then how does that factor into my acceptance of their um, their uh, their presence within the, the boundaries of my group? Right. There's your amygdala mm-hmm. at work trying to make Passing that judgment. judgment. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get into uh, not only the idea of us staring at other people, but the feeling that individuals are staring at us. Whoa. All right, we are back, and Robert Lamb, have yes. you ever had the sense that someone was staring at you? You turned around, and, and lo and behold, that person was staring at you. I do get the feeling that people are staring at me sometimes, but again, since I tend to be more passive, my reaction is to not engage them and to continue looking at my book or out the window. Mm-hmm. Or if I can, but, but if I can, then I might try to check a reflection to see if I'm being stared at. Uh, to confirm, okay. But then there are always those, those moments, too, where you look up from whatever you're doing and someone's eyes dart away from you. And then instantly you you think, oh, they were staring at me. Yeah, and I have to say, I've, I've felt that way before. Yeah. Or like you felt like someone was staring at you, you happened to turn around and lo and behold, they were. And this is called the psychic staring effect. It's that idea that you can really sense this, that this might be you know, another one of our senses that we have. Um, or the, the, the converse of this is that you yourself could stare so intensely at someone else that you could cause them to turn around and look at you. Like a cartoon effect where the eyeballs like come out of the head uh, and elongate and actually hit something that they're looking at? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, according to Skeptic, um, the first scientific studies of what is called PSE were reported in 1898 by British psychologist Edward B. Titchener. He was interested to know if this was a thing. Mm-hmm. Because it feels real. It, it when, does. when you're experiencing it, it, it feels like you're actually sensing someone's stares. Yeah. But now, all of the uh, the studies he did, they were all negative. So um, we don't know how many subjects were involved or how actually the studies were conducted. But we do know that his findings, at least, were negative. But along comes someone called Rupert Sheldrick. And uh, he's done several informal and formal studies that show that PSE is real-ish. You know, his studies would bear that out. Now, others who have tried to replicate the studies get negative results. Um, And when they replicate his studies, by the way, they're, they're using a random process and other strict controls that he has been criticized for not using. Well, that's a red flag right there. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it's always a red flag if you can't replicate the results over and over again, right? Um, So I would say, at best, the jury is still out. At worst, it does seem like this is something that is is not a thing with a capital T. Yeah, researching uh, the material, I I really had to fall into the uh, suspicion that it is not a thing, that it's merely... um, a combination of, of two things, really. Uh, the, the, first of all, it's it's about superstition. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and then the uh, the other side of it is that of course it is a um, it's a false positive. Okay, this goes into the whole uh, idea of error management theory, which we've we've touched on before in discussing uh, belief in the supernatural, belief mm-hmm. in lucky charms, uh, various things that are not real. So uh, when it comes to cognition, we have two types of errors: uh, cognition and dealing with uh, situations of uncertainty. You can make a type one error, a false positive, in which we decide that a risk or benefit exists when it does not. Okay, so we make a type one error when we think that there's a saber toothed tiger uh, behind us. And then they're not there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then there's a type two error, a false negative, and this uh, entails failing to notice a risk or benefit that exists. So this is when we think there might be a saber tooth tiger, but we don't act on it, and then we're eaten. So we made a we're like, oh, I don't think there's anything there, and then we're consumed. So it's better to think that there might be that saber tooth yeah. tiger. Na- you can argue that nature selects for those who jump to conclusions because if I react. Every time, like there's a saber-toothed tiger, tiger mm-hmm. then it's more likely that I will react correctly when the saber-toothed tiger actually comes for me. And likewise, if I always assume there's no saber-toothed tiger on the other side of the high grasses, then I have increased odds of winding up in a saber-toothed belly. Okay, so that falls in line perfectly with a study in uh, current biology by the University of Sydney called Humans Have an Ex- Expectation That Gaze Is Directed Toward Them. I think the title kind yeah, of Because if someone's looking at me... They might have uh, some be- some ill intentions. So it's the same thing. Yeah. So the idea is that we always think that people are staring at us. So or we always expect that they are. So if you feel like there's a sense like, oh, someone's staring at me right now, you may look around quickly and just assume that person is staring at you. Mm-hmm. So the researchers say that this is largely protective, as you say, and that in many primates, a direct gaze is threatening or aggressive. And you'd want to make sure that you didn't miss this, right? You'd want to know if someone was trying to threaten you. So what they did, of course, is they took some participants with computer-generated faces in front of them. Mm -hmm. And then they made it difficult for the observer, for the participants, by obscuring the direction of the gaze by rotating the head slightly from previous positions. And they asked the participants to judge the relative gaze directions overwhelmingly uh, when they were in these uncertain positions, people were more likely to judge that even this computer-generated face was staring directly at them. Huh. So, you know, just the tiniest little bit of the gaze change, they think, oh, it's still looking at me, even when it wasn't. Hmm. So that's why the researchers say this is something that perhaps we're just hardwired to believe that people are staring at us. So if you... Are, I'm sure you've seen this in the, or noticed this in the train before. If someone is sitting across from you with sunglasses on, uh-huh. don't you for a while think, I know you're staring at me. Quit staring at me. Well, what are you thinking? Arr, arr. And then you realize suddenly, okay, they have sunglasses on. They could be asleep right now. It's true. Yeah. But I but I often find myself in, in the past, I don't really wear sunglasses much on the train anymore, but I have worn sunglasses on the train and have thought to myself, I have free reign. I can stare at whoever <laughs> and wherever I want to. And yeah. so I'll stare at this person or I'll stare at that person, you know, um, so I, I I know if I'm doing it, other people are doing it. So it's just the Wild West out there. But isn't it just because you don't have that data, your mind goes a little bit crazy, and you just assume that you're yeah. Being again, I'm going to make that uh, I'm going to make that type one uh, error. I'm right. just going to assume that they're looking at me, and then take either the you know take it either as a compliment or a threat. There you go. Yeah. So uh, the next stage of this research is to try to figure out if this bias, this cognitive cognitive bias, really is learned or innate. 
and what it might tell us about other mental conditions because it's shown that people who have autism are less able to tell whether someone is actually looking at them or staring at them. And then people with social anxiety, on the other hand, have a higher tendency to think that they are under the stare of others hmm. more often. So it's, a, it's interesting bit of research there. See what they tease out on that. Cool. And like I say, I feel like it has d- direct correlation with uh, a, a lot of the research that we've looked at in the past about superstitious beliefs mm-hmm. and the idea that a lucky charm works, uh, etc. Right. We do it because it makes sense for us to go ahead and believe that this is the case. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, we've talked a lot about staring in faces. Uh, people are, are looking at my face. I'm looking at other people's faces. But... Uh, there's another type of staring that goes 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 around, and that, of course, is staring at body parts. Yeah, and this is where we get into objectification, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just staring at someone. You're staring at some aspect of that person. We have mentioned this study before, but Sarah Treface, uh, she's an assistant professor and lead author of the study Seeing Women as Objects, said... We introduced and tested the sexual body part recognition bias hypothesis that women versus men's bodies would be reduced to their sexual body parts in the minds of perceivers. And this is called global processing of data data rather than local. So in other words, what they did is they, they took images of clothed men and women and they put them in front of 227 people, equally men and women, mm-hmm. And they were shown a sequence of images before two images settled on their screen. One was of the original image, and the other showed the groin area. The groinage, if you will. The groinage. And men and women were more likely to recognize body parts when shown images of women. Okay, again, this Mm -hmm. is that, that global. And then both were more likely to recognize the whole image when shown pictures of men. What does it say? It says that we look at men as complete people. Whereas women, we look at them in just parts, and global, men and women. So we use global processing with men, and we use local processing with women. Yeah. Okay. And, and not to say that we cannot look at women with global processing. And in fact, I would challenge anyone out, I mean, especially the men out there, that if you find yourself using local processing, uh, you know, just sort of without thinking about it, like, oh, I'm looking at that person's butt, like it at least like turn on global processing for a minute and think, oh, I wonder what uh, his or her hopes and dreams are. You know? Well, what I think is interesting about that is that both men and women do it. Mm-hmm. So if I'm on the train and another woman comes on, if I'm not conscious of it, most likely I'm maybe looking at this person in parts as well and not thinking, like, what's she going to have for dinner tonight? But more like, look at those elbows. Those are some yeah. sharp elbows. <laughs> I bet they could really deliver... A lot of pain. Um, yes, something like that. But it made me think about Marina Abramovich. Okay, so mm-hmm. she is a uh, performance artist. We've talked about her before. Fascinating. She has an exhibit or had an exhibit called The Artist is Present, and it was a retrospective of her work over the past 40 years. And she has done a lot uh, with objectification. In fact, in one of her performance pieces, I believe she was naked and she had a bunch of objects around her. There was like a feather and then there was also a a gun. Mm -hmm. Was it loaded? I can't even remember that detail. I can't remember if it was loaded either, but there was a knife. There was all sorts of things. There was a flower. Mm -hmm. And she allowed the the audience to choose what they might do with those objects. And she said it was awful that, that overwhelmingly after a period of time passed and one person did something that was sort of out of the norm with one of those objects, mm-hmm. people, other people felt normalized by it. And she had, you know, knives held up to her. She did have one person wielding the gun. And um, 
so it was really an exploration of like how easy it is to objectify someone, particularly a woman. Yeah. So this uh, this exhibit that she had the artists present is really sort of um, a way, the opposite of that, a way to sort of take that objectification, turn it around on its head, and she would sit across from someone mm-hmm. at a table, and the and that way the audience member was just one person just sitting across from her, and she would stare at them for 10 minutes, and they at her. And that way they had to look at her fully as a human being, and she had to look at them fully as a human being. And what's, it's, you know, it seems pretty like, okay, well, what are you talking about? Why is that art just two people sitting across from each other? But it turns out this is a really powerful experience, because as we discussed in our podcast on performance art, you very seldom sit across from someone and look in their eyes for 10 minutes straight, even yeah. your loved ones. And so people just started crying and, and felt overwhelmingly like they were just in love with her. That was some of the things, uh, some of the things that were said that she saw them finally as a person. Huh. Um, and here she is, a stranger to them. You know, and again, that's one of the things that makes podcasting so weird because we're in here for like an hour and there's an absurd amount of eye contact going on. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, for ten minutes, you and I don't just just sit there and stare at each other. Well, no, that no, would just be and weird. that would be that would be weird, and it, and arguably, it would be a real pain to listen to. Well, what I think is interesting about what Abramovich was doing is that, and I don't know if she was aware that she was gaming people in mm-hmm. a way, but um, she was sort of manipulating their feelings, and, and she did have an accomplice come behind and take their wallet about five minutes in. She did, yeah. Not. That's there was no how they funded the whole thing. <laughs> well, you know, you got to get creative in the arts. Uh, in Jay Kellerman's paper, Looking and Loving, the Effects of Mutual Gaze on Feelings of Romantic Love, researchers took 72 unacquainted undergraduate students, split them into male-female pairings, and then they studied the effects that two minutes, just two minutes of uninterrupted mutual eye contact had on their feelings toward one another. And they found that if the two strangers gazed into each other's eyes for those two minutes, they later reported that they had increased feelings of affection or even passionate love toward that person. Now, they did this um, in other ways where they weren't asked to actually, like, actively stare into each other's eyes, but just be with each other for two minutes. They were free to look at the person's hands or so on and so forth. And in that case, they did not report those feelings. But there's something about connecting, staring into the eyes for that long, uninterrupted, that causes those feelings. And so I wasn't too shocked when um, when I began to think about some of the things that popped up from Abramovich's performance. Like there's a website called uh, Marina Made Me Cry or Marina <laughs> Abramovich Made Me Cry um, because that's the, the sort of deep-held feelings that are in there that when you connect with a person on that level, they come out. It reminds me, too, the study of... Uh the two documentary, the excellent documentary films, um, Baraka and Samsara, mm-hmm. both by the same uh, filmmakers. Um, have you seen either of those? I assume you've seen Baraka. I've seen Samsara. Oh, you have seen Samsara. Yeah, okay. and I've seen Baraka, but that was a long time ago, and I, I wasn't so eh, about it. And, yeah. and then you were terribly mortified by that. <laughs> well, um, as you'll remember, in, in both of these films, and this is not a technique that's limited just to uh, Samsara and Baraka, but they'll have these scenes where there'll be an individual from a different culture, and they'll just be standing there. Uh, Filmed, mm-hmm. staring at you. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, you are you are forced to make eye contact with this individual and connect with this this uh, this subject of this uh, this portrait. Mm-hmm. Not not only as a subject, as an as an object, but as a person. And it it's really emotionally evocative. 
Right. Again, because now you're you're considering them as the whole. Yeah. Because yeah. you're 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 watching them breathe and you're 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 staring into their eyes. I'm saying you exist. Yeah. I exist. Yeah. And then someone next to you in the theater says, "Shh, cut that out. Quit talking to the screen." We're telling the screen it exists. We're trying to watch a movie here. But going back to the old staring contest, mm-hmm. uh, and I wasn't really prepared for the staring contest. Uh, I'm not trying to get out of losing it, but I kind of forgot what the rules were. Because apparently the rule is not that you, you lose by looking away, mm-hmm. but you lose by blinking alone, which seems kind of silly. Yeah, but that's the dominance factor, right? Yeah. Like, I will not blink, and and I will be so intense and aggressive that I will win this. I told you, I need to have a rematch with my brother, clearly. You do. You yeah. do. Maybe you can do it over Skype or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to. FaceTime, maybe. Um, so, of course, blinking, though, is, is inevitable, and we do it something like 15 to 20 times a minute. Well, we have to. It, it lubricates the cornea, and if you're not blinking enough, it's, it's not good for the eye. Right, and it's dislodging little bits of dirt and dust that get in there. But this is a really interesting revelation that has recently come out. In a 2012 paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, researchers found that people tend to blink at predictable moments, and they, they blink a lot more than they need to. So you don't need to blink 15 to 20 times a minute just to lubricate your eyeball or dislodge something. So you've got these predictable moments that mm-hmm. you blink at. So if you're reading, you tend to blink at the end of each sentence. If you're listening to someone speak, you may blink when the speaker pauses between statements. Mm-hmm. And if a group of people are all watching the same video, everyone tends to blink at the same time when the action briefly lags. I was trying to remain conscious of my blinking just now, and I did find that I would blink whenever you would have a stop in the sentence. I know. Actually, I wish that we had uh, had given everybody a tip-off before I read that to see if they were doing the same thing. But maybe you guys out there are being aware of that as well. Well, as I say this, think about when you when you blink. Twas Brilg and the Slithy Toads did Gway and Gimbal in the Wave. When did you blink? You know, I think it might have matched up yeah. with the with the Gazoom tight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's more to it, though. This is the the really cool thing. It, it's uh, it's blinking. It turns out is a way that we get a quick refresher for our brains. Yeah, and since we're resetting the uh, the the visuals that we're taking in, which mm-hmm. which I find kind of find really interesting it's it's like i'm looking at a painting and then i blink and maybe i'm looking to a new part of the painting and i'm seeing it anew each time we blink we're kind of reestablishing the scenario for the brain in a sense we're kind of updating the uh the, the image like a like yeah. a, a security camera that uh, doesn't have a constant stream but merely updates every few seconds it's refreshing and refocusing and, of course, someone tested this out. Uh, Tamami Nakano, along with other researchers, scanned the brains of 10 volunteers in an fMRI machine while they watched. Okay, check this out. Mr. Bean. <laughs> Why Mr. Bean? I do not know. But they watched the show Mr. Bean uh, while they were being scanned. And it turns out when the volunteers blinked, the activity correlated with increased blood flow to the default mode network, which we know is the seat of midline chatter in our brain, but also is associated with a state of rest, uh, or rather wakeful rest. So the Mr. Bean show also contained momentary blackouts. So those were built into the shows. And volunteers would see nothing, and these blackouts actually lasted for the same amount of time that a blink does. And what they found is that the brain did not respond in the same way. Hmm. And that that area that's related to the default mode network was not 
activated. And that leads to this conclusion that blinking is something that is that's much more than just a temporary blackout, um, that it is serving a purpose to refocus our efforts and our thoughts. So in a sense, if we're engaging in some sort of like alpha mare stare down and we're not blinking, what we're saying is, yeah, I don't need to reset this. I see everything I need to see right here. I don't need any new information. That's right. That's right. Better step off. That's right. I'm the Zen master of all stimuli coming in right now. Cones and rods, cones and rods. (laughs) So take that in with you next time you, uh, you're on the train, you're at the mall, you're pulling out of your driveway and there's uh, somebody that needs a serious stare down. Um, now you know a little more about why you feel this compulsion to either engage with the staring or to run from it or, uh, or indeed why the, the blinking occurs because you're, you're updating the information that uh, is before you. And probably that person isn't staring at you, but it's good for you to be aware of your surroundings, right? Yeah, calm down a little bit. You're probably not being <laughs> stared at unless, you know, there is something like stuck to the back of your shirt or something. And in, case, in that case, maybe somebody will say something. Or toilet paper trailing down from your pants. But don't worry about that. It's just random stuff yeah. of life. The little indignities. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and um, and call it a day on this podcast. Uh, the robot is on vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we hope that he's having a great time. Where did he go? Ibiza. Yeah. Mm, oh, yeah. wow. Well, he loves the he loves the music scene there. He does, yeah. and volleyball. Yeah, and volleyball. Yeah. So those are his passions, so we hope he's living it up. Um, in the meantime, if you wanted to touch base with us about staring, about blinking, we would love to hear from you. Uh, what is your weird social dynamic with individuals uh, in regard to staring? Uh, what is, is there any truth to this whole, like, is the world really about dudes who lift and dudes who don't lift? And then what is it like, uh, what's it like as a woman to engage in this, uh, in this world of staring, in this world of objectification, and the seeing of individuals as, uh, as a pile of parts rather than a whole? All of that's fair game. You can find us in the usual places. Our, uh, main homepage, stufftoblowyourmind.com, Facebook and Tumblr, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Twitter, where we are Blow the Mind, and YouTube, where we are Mind Stuff Show. And if you are a lifter and you refute my anecdote about this aggressive staring into the mirror, <laughs> set me straight. Let me know. Uh, let us know your feelings by dropping a line at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 